Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon. So Nicodemus is on our journey, our journey of having many of his perceptions about who Jesus is and indeed what it is to know God clarified, and many of the obstacles that prevented him from believing in Jesus taken away. What were the obstacles? The obstacles were that he could save himself. He was a good man. I'm sure Nicodemus was a good man. I'm sure he had his wife and his 2.4 kids and his nice house and his car and his decent job, and he was an elder or or even more, a minister or even a bishop of the kirk. Uh, You know, he was held in high regard in the community. He, he had his thoughts, we all do, but he didn't go running amok or doing anything wrong. He provided for his family, he paid his taxes, he did everything that you could be expected of him. And yes, he loved God, in a sense. After all, if you didn't, you wouldn't be getting out your kit in the middle of the night and going to visit Jesus. You'd be staying at home. So he had a respect for God. He acknowledged that there was a higher power. He recognized that that higher power had made a special promise to a particular type group of people, the Jewish people, of which he was one. In his own body, he would have had the sign of circumcision that was a sign of being committed to that God and that God alone in a pagan world where all sorts of spiritualities and philosophies were going about, a world very similar to the 21st century. He tried to follow the rules. He went to church or to temple or synagogue. He carried out the sacrifices. He fulfilled everything. He probably was many ways like the Apostle Paul when he wrote it later on in life, said, as far as the law was concerned, I was blameless. As far as religious duties I was concerned, I was a zealot. But that wasn't enough. And deep, deep down in the middle of the night or when he was sitting at the kirk or the temple or the synagogue, when he was going about his daily business, there was that nagging question, is it enough? Can I save myself? Do I really know God? And especially when Jesus speaks of God in such a personal way, and when these people, these sinners, these folk who blatantly have not kept the rules and are now suffering the consequences of it, when these folk are, are, are now saying that they know God and love God and, and enjoy God, well, really, how can that be? Does that describe some of us here this morning, good church people? And yet we read these stories and there's books in the bookstall and there's books in the library of stories of people's testimonies of conversion and they have dramatic encounters with God and they were, you know, they were, you know, they were granny bashers when they were three years old. They robbed the Bank of England when they were six. They were on, you know, you know, and the whole story of how bad they were and then suddenly their life was changed and we read these stories and we think, well, that's all very And yet there's that niggling thing that have they got something I don't have? And Jesus, in one sense, doesn't help. Well, he does, but 
Look what he says. And Nicodemus says, how can this be in verse 9? Then he goes on to say, you're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. Interesting enough, what Jesus is saying and using is using the plural letter e, we. He's speaking about God. God revealing things, God making things known. Testifying to the spiritual other. Verse 12, he says, I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And he's using a phrase there that again would have rung bells with Nicodemus, the picture in the book of Daniel of the Son of Man striding through the earth, God's anointed servant, God's man for the hour. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus here is saying, Nicodemus, you know the Bible. You know the Old Testament. Well, you remember the story, the story of the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 12. The people of Israel had rebelled against God. They had, they had, they had gone off on their own. They were under God's judgment, and part the sign of that judgment was a plague broke out. Not particularly unusual in the middle of a desert and the conditions they were in, but a plague broke out, and the people were dying. How could they be saved? Well, they could be saved by Moses taking a bronze serpent, as it's told here, a bronze snake, and lifting it up in a pole. And so he made this thing and lifted it up in a pole. And if people looked at that, that pole, interesting enough, probably in a cross shape, they were healed and saved. Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. You see, Nicodemus, let the Old Testament tell you this. The end of the day, you can't save yourself. Who can save themselves? Nobody. How can you be saved? Not by keeping the rules, not by doing this, not by doing that, but simply looking and putting your faith in what God has said and done. That's the basis upon which you can be saved. As the Holy Spirit spiritually rebirths us, spiritually makes us aware of the other, of this whole dimension. That's what it means to be born again. It's a phrase that's been caricatured and misused and bandied about and often in very unhelpful ways. But that's what that phrase meant when Jesus said that, to be spiritually reborn. And that which appears as foolishness. If I look at a, a snake on a pole when you're dying in the plague in the wilderness, I mean, it does sound a bit silly, doesn't it, to be honest. But the foolishness of God is wiser than the highest philosophy and dreams of men. And a man stripped bare, bloodied, bruised, battered, hanging on the cross is the Redeemer of the world. Who O Lord, could save themselves. Their own soul could heal. Our shame was deeper than the sea. Your grace is deeper 
And um, so don't invite aliens to lunch, Warren Sighters. And, and I did think, I wonder what this is about. You know, this is, is this folk from Edinburgh inviting folk from Edinburgh over for a, you know? Um, and, and no, this is it. This year it says a powerful radio transmitter will angle itself towards a star system and broadcast a message that is nothing less than humanity's application to join the wider cosmic community. We're leaving, we're leaving Europe, perhaps, but we're going to join up with some kind of, you know, you know. Well, no wonder you're laughing. We've got to say this. Um, it's full of the transmission. It goes on to the so I don't need to say it much. So it's, 100, oh, it's all to do with the story of Earth, okay? Um, the fellow who's an astronomer from St. Andrews University says it could simply demonstrate that Earth is a good place to find lunch. Maybe, he said, they will come and eat us. <laughs> now, some folk down in England were troubled about the Poles and the Romanians coming over, but I don't think that's anything compared to, 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 to this. It goes on to say there is no international body that dictates whether it's sensible to broadcast our position to the cosmos or more prudent to stay hidden. And now we're doing just that. Dr. Dominic thinks that we should stop and ask people if this is a good idea. So we're going to have a referendum. No, <laughs> no, it doesn't say that. For the first time, astronomers are facing an ethical question. Should we send messages out to others? Is this dangerous? Should we keep a lower profile? In July, he and colleagues will be canvassing the public at the Royal Society's Summer Science Exhibition. He said that there were compelling arguments on both sides. Stephen Hawking once warned that if we invited contact with an advanced alien civilization, it would be, to quote, like Native Americans encountering Columbus. That didn't turn out so well for them. On the other hand, it may be that by telling other civilizations we exist, they won't inadvertently annihilate us. It turns out that they have, if they are there somewhere, way out in the solar system, they will have been able for the last 50 light years to tune in to the Archer's Omnibus. <laughs> he says, we're working on the zoo hypothesis, he said. Maybe they'll look at us like animals in a zoo. If so, we need to get the zookeeper to respond. And this is the best way to do that. If you go to the zoo and see a herd of zebra, you know that they are there, but they're just zebras. If one turns to us and taps out a series of prime numbers with its foot, though, that becomes a radically different relationship. <laughs> Interesting of the leading article, I'll not read all that out to you, the leading article in the paper, there's one of the three, and it says, shush, it says, for heaven's sake, don't tell aliens we're here. And he and the, the, the guy writing this is just in case they are there, where it's not the most prudent thing to do. He says the most prudent message is to keep quiet. What do you think? <laughs> are we alone in the universe? It's quite a thought, isn't it? You look out and it's a clear night and you're away from the city lights and you look out and you see the stars. And you think of all these stars are all suns that are now with modern advances in astronomy, they can detect even planets circling these suns that are 
billions of light years away, or millions of light years away. Are we alone? Now, most people, especially most people in our society, well, they just get on with it, haven't they? How are we going to be able to pay the, the, the increased gas bill? Or, you know, have enough for the kids' clothes or, or whatever? Or what's going to happen tomorrow morning at work? So most people just carry on life, just forgetting about that. But down through the ages, civilizations, ancient and modern, have asked that question. Are we alone? Is there anything out there and up there? Christianity has an answer. We're not alone. There is a creator God, and He doesn't wait for us to send out signals to Him, or to send out a spaceship, or whatever. He comes down to us. The Word that spoke and brought everything into being, including the, the vastness of the universe, that Word that was with God and is God, took frail flesh and lived among us, full of grace and truth. There was a Jewish leader named Nicodemus who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. One night, he went to Jesus. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher sent by God. No one could perform the miracles you are doing unless God were with him. I am telling you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. How can a grown man be born again? He certainly cannot enter his mother's womb and be born a second time. I am telling you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. A person is born physically of human parents, but is born spiritually of the Spirit. Do not be surprised, because I tell you that you must all be born again. The wind blows wherever it wishes. You hear the sound it makes, but you do not know where it comes from where it is going. It is like that with everyone who was born of the Spirit. How can this be? You are a great teacher in Israel, and you don't know this. I am telling you the truth. We speak of what we know and report what we have seen, yet none of you is willing to accept our message. You do not believe me when I tell you about the things of this world. How will you ever believe me then, when I tell you about the things of heaven? And no one has ever gone up to heaven except the Son of Man who came down from heaven. As Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the desert, in the same way the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world so much that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not die, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to be its judge, but to be its savior. Those who believe in the Son are not judged. But those who do not believe have already been judged 
because they have not believed in God's only Son. This is how the judgment works. The light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Those who do evil things hate the light and will not come to the light because they do not want their evil deed to be shown up. But those who do what is true come to the light in order that the light may show that what they did was in obedience to God. If you want to turn in your Bibles to that story from John's Gospel, it can be found as page 1065 in the Pew Bibles. 1065. This morning we're looking at the story of Nicodemus. And in many ways, you couldn't get a more contrasting story than the story we looked at last Sunday in John chapter 4. And oh, it's not taking any order. I'm in a sense, I'm, I'm going from week to week just to be sensing what might be helpful for us in these vast number of encounters that Jesus had with people. But last Sunday, we looked at the story of the Samaritan woman. And Nicodemus, we're told at the beginning of chapter 3 in John's Gospel, was a Pharisee. Now, just unpackage even what that was. That, that word is used to describe his, his clan, in a sense, the group that he was a part of. The Pharisees had started, they had found their inspiration many years before the time of Jesus, actually during the time, the intertestamental period, the period between the end of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, and the beginning of the New Testament, some 400 years. And during that period, as some of you will know, Israel's fortunes once again waned. They had come back from exile, and it had been restored, at least in part, but, but it wasn't as glorious as it had been in David's day or Solomon's day, but it had been restored as a, as a nation state with, its own, with the worship of God and a, and a temple, a very modest affair compared to David's temple, had been rebuilt. Um, but it was, it was quite a weak country, military in terms of its power, and also still quite weak in its relationship with God. It's actually quite challenging as you read those chapter books in the Old Testament, telling the people as they come back from exile to waken up spiritually and, and to take more seriously the things of God. Well, he was say, they were saying that, people like Ezra, Nehemiah, and others were saying that, because even in the period of restoration, there was half-heartedness and a kind of casual spirit. It's nothing new in the life of the church or the life of God's people, that attitude. And so during the intertestamental period, Israel once again fell under the control of others through the Persians and the Greco-Persians. And, and so during that period, it really spiritually was in a poor way. And the Pharisees were a group, in many ways, they would be a group who, that some of us anyway, using the title evangelical, it's not one actually I'm always that comfortable with because I think it can suggest there's different brands of Christian, but nonetheless, in one sense, the Pharisees could be regarded as, as the evangelicals. They were the ones who, in a sense, took seriously God's word at a time when others weren't, particularly after a time of great apostasy when, when the temple had been desecrated. 
And, and they took seriously God's word and saw, and to be fair, they saw that the way to see Israel revive its fortunes was not through military power and all the rest of it, nor with alliances with pagan nations round about, was to be spiritually renewed. That was how Israel was going to stand and to fulfill its calling as a people to be spiritually renewed. That's true for the church of Jesus Christ in our nation today. If it's spiritually renewed, then it will fulfill its calling to be that light to the nation. And that was, that was the Pharisees. They, they believed that. But like many good movements that started out, and there's been plenty of movements within the church over the last 2,000 years, like many good movements that started out, somewhere along the line, it began to lose the plot. We're human. We're frail. We're fallen. We're sinful. Pride is always at the door. And the Pharisees, particularly as a group, began to think to themselves, well, we've really got the answers here. We know what's in the book, and not just in the Old Testament, the scrolls of the Old Testament, but in all the other writings that went alongside that, the commentaries, in a sense, of the Old Testament, except these commentaries became even more important than the actual text itself. It's what this rabbi or that teacher said, and how they interpreted the law that became um, even more important, because, of course, if you could tick all the boxes and fulfill all the laws and be seen to be really, really holy and special, well, folk would kind of, oh, well, you see, they're quite, you know, well, that's quite nice to feel like that. And so within the Pharisees, certainly by the time Jesus came, and many of you again will know that, they became, as a group, the most, one of the most resistant to the gospel because they saw religion as what they did, who they were, what they could know, what they could achieve in their moral goodness and in their obedience to the laws of God. And here's this guy coming along whose parentage is a bit questionable, who was brought up as a carpenter's son in Nazareth, which is a bit of a backwards place. And here's this guy coming along and he's speaking, and, and, and he's speaking in, with, with ordinary language that ordinary folk could understand, not in the these and the those and all the fancy stuff. He's not dressed up like a rabbi. He, yes, he's got a team of folk that follow him, these disciples, but what a bunch they are. I mean, have you ever seen them? Bunch of, you know, failed fishermen and, you know, traitors to the cause because they're tax collectors or wimps or whatever, you know? And, and, and this is the bunch that are following this guy, Jesus, and yet he's got the cheek, this Jesus, to be going about telling them that God can be known, not just through the, the law, the word, but can be known in a heart, in a life. And can, can be, you, can, you can be personal and almost be pally with God. Well, that's just not on. And even worse than that, he's got the cheek to say to somebody that their sins are forgiven. That only belongs to God, who's unknown, immortal, invisible, only wise. How can he do that? He's blasphemous. And as you read the gospel account that spreads through the three years of Jesus' public ministry, you see amongst the Pharisees this growing resentment against this Jesus because he was challenging what they believed their position and status, indeed he made fun of that, that type of religious pride and arrogance. And so they became more and more, as a body, 
resistant to Jesus Christ. They made unholy alliances with other groups within this Jewish council, other groups that normally they would not have anything to do with, like the Sadducees who denied the resurrection and believed the only bit of the Old Testament you should hold to would be the first five books of the law, the books of Moses, the rest of it was a bit suspect. Or they made, they made an unholy alliance with those who actually were really Herod's men and Roman's men, that they were actually working for the state, but they were there, but they were, you know, uh, but the Pharisees, better the devil you know than the devil you don't. And so this man named Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, who's a member of the ruling Jewish council, their parliament really effectively, he comes to Jesus. And notice when he comes, he comes at night. And notice also what he says, rabbi, using the word given to a teacher of the law, rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Nicodemus wasn't just another Pharisee. The very fact he went at night suggests that he didn't want to be seen privately. There was no streetlights, as you noticed, or, you know, and so he went quietly, privately. But he went with a growing sense, as he had heard perhaps, and perhaps he had seen some of the things that were happening. And as he heard the debate going on amongst other Pharisees and other religious leaders, Nicodemus wasn't just going to go with the crowd, fall into line, become just another one that nods his head and said, oh yes, that's right. He was willing to explore for himself. And that's what he does. And you know, my friends, that's what men and women need to do in their spiritual journey before God. How sad it is in many ways, very understandable, but how sad it is that the vast majority of us are a bit like, you know, the ants that run about. You know, we've got, we've got I think I'm always waiting someday for the pathway out from the front of the man's to collapse down a big hole because for all the years I've been there, every year they, you see the ants coming out and they eventually see the wee flying ants going out to make up other nests. There must be a whole See, there's a minefield, not minefields, but tunnels under our front door. And all these wee ants run about and they just go, and a sad thing is the vast majority of people are just like that, running about. And on my daily life, fair enough. But never look up, never look out, and very rarely, and if they do, if they do, because things happen, someone dies, or some circumstances change, whatever, they often retreat back into their place where they feel safe, which is, well, just don't think about that. Let's just get on. But one of the signs of God at work within a human heart is that the Spirit of God starts to cause you or me or Nicodemus to ask questions, to begin to think of beyond just this to begin to look up and look out, begin to explore, to begin to inquire. And that's the sign of God at work, His purposes, His calling, His prompting. And He wants us to come to ask, like Nicodemus said, He comes with questions. 
We, we, he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. But, but he's really, there, in a sense, asking a question. So, so what? what? What about it? You know, what? That's... Jesus responds, it's very true, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And Nicodemus thinks, oh, flip, I wish I hadn't even started this conversation. He says, well, he says, how can someone be born again when they're old? Surely they can't enter a second time in their mother's womb to be born. Oh, Jesus, you know, I've come here, I'm generally asking questions, and here's this stuff right away, you're throwing stuff at me, and it just doesn't make sense. But again, a sign of the Spirit of God at work is that even when maybe sometimes it seems a bit kind of out there, a bit odd, a bit strange, there's still something that makes happen. There's something in that. And Jesus responds, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at me saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And what's happening here is that Nicodemus is being invited to think beyond the material, beyond the, the physical, beyond that which can be determined by dates and times and personal circumstances. He's been invited to look up, using the example of nature, the way the wind blows, the way it moves, the effect it has. But he's using that sign of nature, as you saw in the film, very helpfully as he stood inside atop of the, the house um, supposedly in Israel, and Nicodemus would feel the wind blowing. He's saying to Nicodemus, you know, there's things that you feel, there's things that happen, the things that sense that you can't explain scientifically, that you can't explain in a, in a tangible way, and yet you feel love. Emotions are stirred. Memories are provoked, like me remembering being a few years ago, at St. George's Tron when it was maybe 1918. Things stir. Things that are beyond the tangible, but things that actually make you and me human and not a wee ant running about the ground blind to, blind to everything else. Those other things that make us who we are make us in the image of God. The God who feels the God who sees, the God who loves, the God whose very heart burns with passion. Nicodemus, you're on a journey. And the journey is going to lead you to know God in a new and deeper way. And your life is never going to be the same. Let's pause there and sing together a hymn, Father of Heaven whose love profound a ransom for our souls hath found. Before thy throne we sinners bend, to us thy pardoning love extend. We'll stand to sing. And then we come to probably what is the most well-known verse in the Bible. Interesting enough, it's not, as far as John is concerned, what Jesus actually said necessarily that night with Nicodemus. It's his comment inspired by the Spirit of God on what was going on, not just with Nicodemus's ministry, but with the whole ministry of death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him 
is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. You see, my friends, God has taken that great initiative. He has entered in. He has made contact. He has revealed himself in frail flesh. We live in a day, do we not, where we like to have a whole multitude of options, where we like to dip in and try something out and then dip into something else. But the one that we present, the one that's presented to us, and the one that we as a church and the church of Jesus Christ seek to present is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And how do we know that this is the one who could say these things and back these things up through his ministry, through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection? That's why we're gathered on a Sunday. We're here to celebrate as God's people up and down our land and throughout our world that sin could not defeat God's Savior, God's Son. But they did die, lifted up, but he also rose again the power to bring spiritual you life into your heart. The God who brought again Jesus from the dead is the same God who by the Holy Spirit brings you spiritual life into you and into me. The same Spirit, Paul tells us in the same passage in Ephesians chapter 1, the same Spirit that brought Jesus from the dead is the same Holy Spirit that comes to bring you life. You spiritual awareness. Are you understanding of God? Are you understanding of yourself? And are you ability to know God in an intimate and personal way? That same spirit, the spirit that moved over the waters at the dawn of time, the spirit that brought his son from the grave, is the spirit who works in your life and in mine. And my friends, we don't need to send signals out into the furthest reaches of the universe in order to hear that message because it's already been given. It's already been offered. And he, that Jesus, is already here by the Holy Spirit. And how do we know the impact it had in Nicodemus? Well, plenty of folk here go away, shrug their shoulders and say, well, that was interesting, intellectually provoking. I was speaking to somebody during the week who's very much into Dawkins and all the rest of it, and he said, oh, he said, he said, if you get me to believe, he says, that'll be the, one of the greatest, and he used the phrase because obviously he knows enough about Christianity, one of the greatest evangelical miracles that could ever have taken place, and I said, well, God's in the business of making do miracles. God created everything that is to turn a human soul and to convert a human spirit was not beyond him. Nicodemus, go to the end of your Bible, the gospel story. Jesus is dead. Most of the Pharisees think, great, that's him, out the way, you know doing a present Putin or whatever else, you know, get rid of your opponents and just, you know. And Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Jewish ruling council, says, no, can't have this. Can't have his body flung down 
into the valley to be eaten by the birds. And so he takes the body and needs the help. And you know, he goes and asks for his pal, his pal who's in the Jewish council. You know what his name was? Nicodemus. And together, they laid their Lord in the tomb where Joseph or Nicodemus should really have been laid. In my place, condemned, he stood. That was the beginning of the journey of faith for Nicodemus. And you and me just look. I to the hills, the psalmist says, will lift mine eyes. From whence doth come mine aid? My safety cometh from the Lord, who heaven and earth did make. Don't look at the stars. The stars declare the handiwork of God. But look at Jesus Christ, who hung on the cross for you and for me. Abba, Father, let me be yours and yours alone. May my will forever be evermore your own. Never let my heart grow cold. Never let me go. Abba, Father, let me be yours and yours alone. God, our Father, you know each one of us by name. The very hairs on our head are counted and numbered. You know the journey that has brought us to this place. I don't mean geographical journey, but the spiritual journey that has brought us to this place this day. Not just to this house, this church, this building, but brought us to this place where we stand or sit before the living God. And for many of us here this morning, we give you thanks, O oh God, for that spiritual rebirth, for that new way of seeing and knowing who you are, what you have done, of hearing your voice speak into our lives, of knowing the Bible, not just as a, a collection of ancient documents, but as the living Word of God, the Spirit of God stirring within us, giving us gifts, opening up areas of ministry, bringing us to that place where we bow the knee before Jesus, our only Lord. But that might not be where you are at this morning, and yet you have been brought to you by the Spirit of God. You've been prompted, you've been stirred, you're asking questions, you're looking around, you're wondering. And we hear the word of Jesus when he said, Ask, and you shall receive. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door is open to you. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And Lord Jesus, we would believe your word. We would, as the Bible tells us, we would believe in the name of God's one and only Son. 
And we thank you for that promise. That as we do so, or we do not stand condemned because we are sinners, because we are far from you in our own lives and living by nature, that is our state. But that we stand as your sons and daughters in the kingdom of the king. And so, Holy Spirit, take your word and continue to work it through our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon.